First Peter 5, and we're on Satan and Satanism, part 4. And uh, we're going to discuss this passage uh, next. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And of course the context there is persecution by the state. <coughs> the context, and we're continuing to look at Satan's procedures, and then we're going to look at demons in a minute. The context of 1 Peter 5.8 uh, deals with persecution, and a roaring lion is an Old Testament symbol used to describe the fierce enemies and savage opposition to God's people. Psalm 22.13-14, Proverbs 28.15, Isaiah 5.29, Zechariah, excuse me, Zephaniah 3.3. 3. The statements... Save me from the lion's mouth. The statement, save me from the lion's mouth, uh, Psalm twenty-two twenty-one. or I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, 2 Timothy four seventeen. refer to God's deliverance from satanic persecutors. The metaphor of the lion's roar is to emphasize Satan's work of political and social coercion and violence to intimidate and cause great fear among Christians. Coercion. Violence. Prison. Okay, you disagree with Putin? You want to call something a war that's obviously a war? Prison for 10 years. This tactic is the flip side to the devil's use of infiltration, subtly and clever arguments to tempt believers to sin. Persecution with the threats of social hatred, prison, and violence are intended to scare believers into compromise, faithlessness, and apostasy. Big problem in the early church when Rome was murdering Christians left and right during those periods. And if you denied the faith and you gave a pinch, offered a pinch of incense to Caesar, acknowledging that he's Lord over Christ, they wouldn't kill you. And a lot of people did that because they didn't want to die. Satan hates God's people and is very angry with them for siding with Jesus Christ and God. If he cannot deceive them with subtleties and temptations of the flesh, he seeks to destroy them through fear, leading to a de uh, denial of crucial truths, or by killing them physically, so they can no longer be an influence in this world. All the apostles were murdered, except for the apostle John. All of them. Allegedly, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul had his head chopped off. Persecution is rising in the West as secular humanists seek to stamp out all the remnants of the Christian world and life view in society and replace it with an atheistic perverted law order. How dare you say that a man is a man or a woman is a woman? How dare you say that you don't want your children uh, to be exposed to transvestites in school? and perverse sexuality. That's our society today. And President Biden, who's a total satanic, um, rotten person, is in favor of that. In the Roman Empire, the state attempted to force Christians to burn incense to Caesar and declare the emperor to be lord over all lords. 
Satan deliberately put believers into a position where they had to choose between obeisance to the pagan state as God over our Lord, over mankind and over Jesus Christ, the true king over kings and Lord over lords. It was Christ or Caesar. And you know we can never place the state above Christ, ever. Thousands of Christians were murdered in horrifying ways for refusing to worship the emperor and the state. Fed to lions, killed by, uh, in, in the ring with, with swords, tortured, burned alive, boiled alive, you name it. Uh, Nero used to put people on the end of poles and cover them with pitch and set them on fire and had dinner parties while people were around them burning alive. And then we'll look at demonology for a while. He's the leader of the demons. This is very interesting. Satan, being a finite creature, of course, can only be in one place at a time. Therefore, he uses the demonic courts to carry out his mission against God throughout the earth. His leadership over the demons is noted by Paul in his list of the demonic forces in Ephesians 2.2, where the apostle calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. In Matthew 9.34, the Pharisees call Satan the ruler of the demons. And they accuse Christ of following Beelzebub. In Revelation 9.11, he is called the king over the demonic locusts that come from the bottomless pit. The angel of the bottomless pit. <coughs> Satan sends the demons onto the earth as a scourge over rebellious and apostate people. So God uses Satan and his demons at times to judge people. He gives them, he gives them permission to carry out painful things against people. Satan had fallen to earth. Due to the redemptive work of Christ, Satan had fallen to earth like a star from heaven. And the key to unleash the hordes of demons was given to him by God, Revelation 12.1. Therefore, we see that although the devil is served by unbelievers, Satan and his hosts offer only suffering, calamity, and death as a reward for this loyalty and service. Now, according to a scripture... A third of the angels fell from God by following Satan in his rebellion against Yahweh. In the symbolic language of Revelation, we are told, the dragon, 12.4, called the devil and Satan, 12.9, drew a third, this is 12.9, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And if you study that and you look at the context and everything, that's talking about the fallen angels. So two-thirds were faithful, one-third was unfaithful. One-third of the angels are demons. As fallen and rebellious spiritual beings, the demons follow Satan because they have the same nature. They are wicked, unclean, rebellious, and vicious. Matthew 8, 28, 10, 1, Mark 5, 2 to 5, 9, 20, Acts 19, 15. The same worldview and purpose. Satan being the most powerful is their logical leader. Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 make it clear that their current position is one of judgment by God. And we see this throughout the Gospels. They're afraid of Jesus. They know Jesus is the Son of God, and they beg him, please don't send us down, down into the pit before our time. Moreover, as we have noted, there is a hierarchy of demons. Ephesians 1.21, uh, 3.10, 6.12, Colossians 2.15. That reflects the hierarchy that exists among the, un the unfallen good angels, Colossians 1.16 and 2.10. So they had a, like a military hierarchy 
the good angels did is God created them. They're different levels, seraphim and so forth, and then regular angels. Uh, and then, of course, Satan was the head of the good angels at one time. They retain the hierarchy, but now they're demons. As there are degrees of power and authority among the demons, there are also degrees in wickedness. And I'll look at that passage later. Um, uh, the, a demon comes out of the, uh, a man, and as the, like the house is swept and clean, the demon is wandering in the deserted places. He goes back and he brings seven demons more wicked than himself. More wicked. So there are different levels of wickedness among the demons. Some demons were harder to exercise than others. Matthew 17.21, indicating they're more powerful. The word demon, Greek, daimonion, or uh, daimon, which is uh, only used once in Matthew 8.31, in pre-Christian literature was used to describe gods or divine beings that were much more powerful than humans. These gods, that is pagan idols, were finite yet very powerful. And you're familiar with the Roman gods and the Greek gods. And there was Assyrian gods. And there was Babylonian gods. They had a, they had a pantheon of gods. They were like their superheroes. And these they had different levels of power, but they were like humans. They were finite. They did many evil things. They did some good things, but they did many evil times. At times they behaved good, but they also behaved very bad. They could be located in the heavens or walk on the earth. In some pagan traditions, the spirits of the dead could become demons who were endowed with supernatural powers. These powerful spirit beings were capricious, unpredictable, and were behind terrifying events in history such as natural, natural disasters. They therefore, this is according to paganism, had to be placated by rituals and magical means. You know, offering human sacrifice, for example, and all kinds of rituals to try to get the demons off our back and make them happy. Uh, all pagan religions, almost all pagan religions, had human sacrifice. Because paganism rejected the true God and the creator-creature distinction, they looked at everything as being on the same scale of being, including animals, man, and the many gods or demons. In the Greek Septuagint, on a few occasions, Deuteronomy 32.17, Psalm 106.37, demonia is used for foreign gods. And in the New Testament, demonia is used of pagan deities in Acts 17.18, 1 Corinthians 10.20, or the demons behind false gods. Paul says, well, they worship idols, but, you know, there's demons behind those idols. He says that in Corinthians. They think they're worshiping these gods, like Zeus or, or Ashtoreth or whatever, but they're worshiping demons. In Revelation 9.20, like 1 Corinthians, demon worship is coupled with the worship of idols. <clears throat> so, are false religions innocent? Should we treat all religions equally? Should we say there's neutrality and that we should have complete freedom of religion in a nation? And the answer is no. We should not. In the New Testament, demons are the, uh, are the fallen angels who now follow and serve Satan, Matthew 9.34, Ephesians 2.2. They are mentioned in the Gospels as possessing, oppressing, and tormenting men and are seen in conflict with Christ. There are many accounts of demon possession in the Gospels. I think, I think demons, if you take into the different names, like unclean spirits, evil spirits, and demons, there's like 52 occurrences, maybe even more. Demons are usually called evil or unclean spirits. The word unclean, akathartos, means spiritually or morally unclean or evil. 
Sometimes the word is translated foul. It refers to those who are lawless, rebellious, who commit filthy, perverted, abominable acts. Demons possess both men, the two demons of the Gergesenes, Matthew 9, 32-33, the deaf and blind man, Matthew 12, 22, the man in the synagogue, Mark 1, 23-26, the man who beat up the Jewish exorcist, demanding, uh, demonstrating the impotency of apostate Judaism, Acts 19, 15-16, and women, the daughter of the Syrophoenician, Matthew fifteen twenty-two to 29, Mary Magdalene, Mark 16, 9, the slave girl with the spirit of divination in Acts 16, 16 to 18, and they even possess children, the lunatic child, Matthew 17, 14 to 18. Demonic activities can account for a number of instances of madness in the world. And you look at these homeless people, and some of them are probably demon-possessed, the way they act, and the way they harm people, and they're vicious. Some could simply be crazy due to scrambling their brain with, with drugs. In addition, their great knowledge regarding different events in different areas, coupled with their ability to oppress and influence people, explains their close connection with the occult and divination. Uh, I think I'll mention it later. There's a girl in the book of Acts who has the power of divination. And it's clear from, from the text that she's demon-possessed. Now, if you're demon-possessed and you're wandering all around, you know about things that are happening on the other side of town that other people might not know. And people go, wow, that's impressive, when it's just knowledge from a demon. Demon-possessed persons often lose control over themselves, act very chaotic and violent. For example, uh, Luke 9.39. Demons know who Jesus is and are often very afraid of him for they understand his power and authority. They know exactly who he is. And they call him the Son of God. Matthew 8.20 And they beg him not to send them into the assigned their assigned torment. Their effect on those possessed is antisocial, chaotic, tyrannical, causing people to act crazy, vicious, and violent so that people need to stay away from such persons. In Matthew 8, 28, the two demon-possessed men live in the tombs and are, quote, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Interesting, they live among the dead. Very demonic. And they're so fierce and dangerous, people stay away from that area. In Acts, some, Jew uh, some Jewish exorcists who were not Christians attempted to cast a demon out of a man. It wasn't a woman, it was a man, sorry. They were mocked and then attacked. This is Acts 19.15-16. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Now what had happened, they, they had seen Paul casting out demons very effectively in the name of Christ, which is by the power and authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who is at the right hand of God. So they didn't believe in Jesus, but they thought, well, if we use this name in an incantation, like a magical spell, we can get the demons out of the person. And it didn't work for them because they were not Christians and they didn't believe in Jesus. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then the men in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And the Greek for wounded is very, <laughs> it's very vivid. I mean, they were bleeding. They were beat. They get the pulp beat out of them. 
and they were naked. They, they had their clothes ripped off by one man. One demon-possessed man ripped all the clothes off seven men and then severely beat them, causing wounds. Obviously, the demon gave his victim supernatural strength. Because the Jewish exorcists were not Christians, they used Jesus' name as a magical formula, not as a biblical prayer to God. The rituals and incantations of unbelievers achieve nothing, for it is only Christ in his power that can subdue evil spirits. And the same goes for Roman Catholicism and the supposed exorcists. All these exorcist movies, there's one out right now, actually, uh, which they're all following Roman Catholicism. Satan and the demons don't care about whether you have a cross, which is simply a little idol, and some be and prayer beads, or whether you have so-called holy water and all. All that ritualistic stuff is just, it's perverse. It's not based on scripture. It's just, you're trying to use magic to, ca to get rid of magic. It's totally ineffective. You have to believe in Christ. You have to base everything on the word of God. And it is Christ who has the power. You don't have any power, so you have to pray to Christ, and it's in the name of Jesus. It's by his power and authority that these things can be done. Not by a cross or a crucifix or holy water, which are all nothing but nonsense. Now, a number of scholars believe that demonic possession was more common in the generation when Jesus walked the earth, for they knew their time of dominion was coming to an end. Whether true or not, we do see that the apostles carry on Christ's work of casting out demons in the book of Acts, 5.16, 8.7, and 19.12. So there's a lot of casting out of demons in that first generation. And Christ is already at the right hand of God. Because I know I've read scholars who say, oh, that, well, demon possession, that was for the days of Christ. Well, no, it continues after the days of Christ. And it, there are missionaries, I've seen accounts by missionaries of, of seeing de demon possession in Africa and so forth, and among people who are into voodoo, which is a form of Satanism. <coughs> demons often appear in groups. The possessed men of Gergesenes, Acts, uh, excuse me, Matthew eight twenty-eight to thirty-two. What is your name? Legion. Now, how many are in a legion? I think was it twelve hundred or two thousand? I think it's twelve hundred. <clears throat> the Bible does not go into great detail regarding how Satan and his demons influence unbelieving mankind. There are unclean, evil, unclean spirit beings who live and operate unseen in the atmosphere around Earth. That's their place of abode, the air. The atmosphere, that's the old way of saying the atmosphere. We are told that Satan binds, blinds the minds of men, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, tempts men to sin, Luke 4.13, and that men give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. That demons enter people is seen in the words uh, troubling, Acts 5.16, overtaking, Mark 9.18, and that a person began to be possessed, Luke 4.33, by them. Satan entered into Judas. Luke 22.3 20, and John 13.27. And he filled Ananias' heart to lie to, to, lie to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5.31. I would think that indicates that he was not a Christian. He was a, he was a hypocrite. He was not a true Christian. Apparently, because Satan and demons are incorporeal spirit beings, they can suggest and communicate to unregenerate man's minds, directly tempting them, and, in severe cases, possessing them, and even causing physical and mental afflictions. Now, how they do this, I don't know. I don't think people hear voices, but I think there's some, they have obviously have some kind of influence on unbelievers. 
while it is true that most demonic teachings, philosophies, and ethical positions are mediated through human teachers, the originators of such positions are often influenced directly through demonic forces. The cult leaders, the creators of false religions. In scripture, the spirit of lies and seduction, the spirit lies and seduces to live autonomously in sin, is contrasted with the spirit of truth. Atheists, Marxists, witches, cult leaders, and rank hedonists draw their inspiration from demonic demonical agencies. And for this reason, Paul says that ultimately we wage warfare, quote, against spiritual hosts of wickednesses in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12. Yeah, of course the, the Biden and the, 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 the socialists and the communists and uh, atheists are the enemies of Christ, the enemies of Christians. That's true. But who lies behind them? Who is the source of their worldview and inspiration? Well, Satan and the demons. It is this demonic influence that is reflected in the world spirit. The unbelieving worldview is not only demonic, but lawless, vain, useless, and destructive. When unbelievers propose ideas that agree with biblical ethics or civic goodness, and they do at times, they are stealing ideas from the Christian worldview. They are influenced by the work of God's law written in their heart, Romans 2.15, and are being inconsistent with the demonic world and life view that they possess. Okay, most people are against murder, unless it's a baby. Okay, people, people have ideas based on scripture and based on the fact that we're creating the image of God. Satan's greatest destructive force in mankind comes from his anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-biblical worldview. By controlling men's thoughts, he controls their lives. By controlling men's thoughts, he controls their lives. Now, some of the most common ways that Satan is afflicted, affected and controlled modern society are as follows. Number one, there is the adoption of either explicit atheism, for example, revolutionary France, the French Revolution, the Soviet Union, communist China, Vietnam, Cuba, etc., or practical atheism, the United States Constitution, at least as it's interpreted in modern times. With official atheism, all religions are outlawed or forced to worship the state. In other words, you can say you're a Christian as long as you place the state above Christ and God and you follow the state's laws and reject biblical law. When communist revolutionaries take power, one of the first things they do is murder or liquidate the clergy, the religious leaders, and the Christian intellectuals. That happened in Poland. That happened in the Soviet Union. Uh, it, it happened in Vietnam. It happened in Cambodia. And it happened in Cuba. Venezuela, I don't, I haven't studied Venezuela, but probably, probably did there to a certain degree. With practical atheism, there's a complete freedom of religion as long as one's faith remains a private or a strictly church affair. In other words, you can believe anything you want. Just keep it out of the public schools and don't let it influence our courts or our laws. Keep it between your ears. In other words, all religious faiths are treated as equally true and equally false. Christians can be tolerated 
as long as they do not seek to influence the law order, the public schools, or the culture with biblical theology or ethics. The civil magistrates and public educators cannot appeal to God, Jesus Christ, the Bible, or the Ten Commandments. And that's absolutely true, and you know it's true. The legislator's worldview cannot be derived in any way from biblical Christianity or the Word of God, for they believe that would be a violation of church and state. So you don't see even conservative Republican senators, you don't see them up there quoting scripture saying, well, we ought to do this law because the Bible says. They might appeal to natural law. They might appeal to history, but they're not going to appeal to the Bible. Because according to the modern interpretation of the Constitution, that would be unconstitutional. Now, what is particularly sad and tragic is that many professing Christians have bought into the satanic myth of neutrality. They actually believe that a civil government or school can be neutral or purely secular. And they hold to the position that the state or our national covenant or constitution should not be explicitly Christian and must not explicitly recognize the Lord of, Lordship of Christ over the nations. Now, that was the official Baptist position in the old days. I don't know if it still is, that we should have complete freedom of religion. And that's the official, it did not used to be the official position of Reformed churches and Presbyterians, but it is mostly now. Yeah, we should have freedom of religion. Let Keep, keep religion out of the state, totally. Well, such thinking is radically unscriptural for the following reasons. Okay, they, they don't want any state to explicitly recognize the lordship of Christ over the nations. Can't do that. Got to have freedom of religion. Got to have neutrality, supposedly. Well, number one, for, there's many reasons why it's radically unbiblical. Number one, neutrality is impossible. Jesus Christ said, he who is not with me is against me. Matthew 12, 30. A school or institution that forbids Bible reading, prayer to God through Jesus Christ, teaching the Ten Commandments or Christian ethics, the worship of God and Jesus Christ, confessing Christ before men, and teaching all everything from a Christian perspective is not neutral, but it's atheistic. You can be a Christian all you want, but in our school, you can't mention God, Christ, the Bible. You can't pray. You can't use the Bible for ethics. You can't use the Bible to define meaning or your worldview or anything. What is that? That's atheism. Number two, the Bible teaches that true knowledge and wisdom rests on faith in God and his word. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The presupposition of the triune God of Scripture is necessary even for predication. Christians are to bring up their children in the nurture, discipline, and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4, Deuteronomy 6.7 and 9. So does the Bible say that you can have a neutral education with regard to a Christian child? And the answer is absolutely not. And if you hold that, you're holding to a satanic position. There is no neutrality. If you're not emphasizing Christ and the word of God, then you're emphasizing the worship of the state and atheism, practical atheism. Number three, all laws in a society are based on one's worldview or concept of ultimate authority. If the laws are not based on the Bible and do not come from Yahweh, the true and living God, but rather rely solely 
comes solely from man's uh, subjective opinion, which we call positivistic law, that then men, not Yahweh, is the God of that society. So if, the, the, if men say, or the majority of people vote, and they say, or, or the, the, the elites in society, the, the, the leaders say, that uh, sodomy and fisting and all these things are wonderful and virtuous and should be totally legal, then according to your view, you have to accept that. But that's not the biblical view. God is the originator of all moral laws. Moral laws are a reflection of God's nature and character. Secular humanism is simply idolatry. Number four, the Bible says that Jesus Christ has all authority over heaven and earth. Matthew 28, 18 and following, Revelation 19, 15 to 16, etc. Even over civil magistrates, Psalm 2, 7 to 12, Psalm 72, 11 uh, to 17, and also Psalm 110, 1 to 7, etc. Civil magistrates do, who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ are, according to the Bible, in rebellion against God and will suffer the consequences. Psalm 2 is explicitly clear. If they don't bow the knee to Christ, they will be judged by Christ. So that's not neutrality. And what does the Bible say? What, is our, what does the Bible say? The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 917. A nation that ignores God and refuses to bow the knee to Jesus Christ will come under God's judgment. If our nation doesn't turn around, if there's not a great revival of Christianity in this nation, you know, fasten your seatbelts, folks. It's going to get nasty. You look at, what, 30, $31 trillion in debt? Our governments, uh, civil government spending money like drunken sailors? Uh, disaster is coming. So pray for repentance. Our goal as Christians must be to teach the gospel and the whole counsel of God until every aspect of culture and society is thoroughly Christianized. That is what the Great Commission says. And if you don't agree with that, then you don't agree with Christ who gave us the Great Commission. The idea that we should leave civil government, social institutions, the national laws and courts, as well as society and culture in the hands of the devil is not neutral but demonic. And dispensationalism and most of modern evangelicalism and sad to say most Reformed churches today are teaching a demonic view of the civil magistrate based on the idea that we can have neutrality. And they'll say things like, well, yeah, we can follow natural law. Well, if nat natural law would have to, is simply a less perspicuous version of God's moral law. So if you have a perspicuous crystal clear version of the moral law, why would you ignore that? And, of course, because man is the noetic effects of sin upon man, natural law is not a reliable source. That's obvious because there are about ten different theories of natural law with ten different views of ethics. In our day, copies of the Ten Commandments are even being removed from courthouses. And I just want to say, uh, is 
the idea that we should have a Christian nation with a Christian constitution and Christian laws, is that a violation of church and state? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. The Bible teaches that there are different covenantal spheres with different rules and, and uh, functions. Therefore, the Bible does advocate a separation of responsibilities between the church and the state. The state has the sword and is responsible for civil legislation, obviously based on scripture, punishing criminals, obviously based on scriptural, and protecting the borders. It must not intrude upon the church or perform ecclesiastical functions. The church holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's from Matthew. I forgot to look up the passage. And has a responsibility of preaching the gospel, teaching the whole counsel of God, administering the sacraments, and admitting to church membership as well as church discipline. The church can advise the state and even rebuke and excommunicate civil officials if necessary. But it has nothing to do with the sword or military power. Although church and state are separate covenantal institutions and must not interfere with each other, others' God-given responsibilities, and here's the key, both institutions are directly under the authority of Jesus Christ and God. The civil magistrate has to carry out his separate responsibilities under God according to the word of God. The church must carry on its different responsibilities under God, under the Bible, under Jesus Christ and his law order. Modern secular states deny this crucial truth and instead teach the complete separation of the true and living God from the state. You see the difference? The true separation of church and state means that the church has its job, the state has its job. They're both under God. They're both under Christ. They're both under the Bible. They both have the responsibilities to submit to Jesus Christ, but they, don't, they have different responsibilities. The modern pagan version of this is, is God and Christ and the Bible must be completely separated from the state. And that's a big, big difference. And what do you get with that? You get atheism. You get an atheistic state. You get positivistic law. You completely lose liberty because the men who make up the laws, there's no law above them. You see, the, the true rule of law means that there's a law above the state that the state has to submit to. And therefore, you can appeal to the law above the state and they cannot violate that and lock you up. But if there's no law above the state, if the state simply makes up its own laws, which is what the Democrats clearly believe, and the progressives clearly teach, then no one is safe. And we already see in our country things are so corrupt that the FBI and the, uh, the swamp in Washington and, and the president and the, the, the Justice Department are clearly going after and persecuting Christians and conservatives, and they're completely leaving alone people that are actually engaged in wicked, terrible crimes. The legitimate state, we are told, is the one whose power rests solely upon man and whose laws are determined solely by human intellectual autonomy. Such thinking is satanic to the core, destroys the true meaning of the rule of law. Okay, the moral law is supposed to be objective, unchanging, and absolute, not arbitrary, subjective, and constantly changing. And the foundation of liberty in society is lost. The civil magistrate is not all unto himself, but is under Christ's law. 
And that's what the old good old Scottish Presbyterians back in the day when they were being persecuted by the King of England, King Charles, uh, said, look, there's, there's a law above King Charles, and he has to submit to that law. He's not allowed to make up his own worship apart from the Bible and then uh, put to death people who don't submit to his unbiblical nonsense. The source of the state's worldview and laws can only be derived by autonomous human reason or by appealing to other humanistic traditions which derive laws autonomously. That's the view of, of Satan and the secular society. As society moves further and further away from its Christian past, laws will become more subjective, arbitrary, and immoral. Secular humanists seek to abolish the death penalty for those clearly guilty of murder, but they want to make sure unborn babies can be murdered up to the point of birth. The guilty are protected, while the innocent are slaughtered in the millions. Vicious criminals are afforded all sorts of rights and privileges, while innocent victims are ignored and told to keep their mouths shut. Murder, theft, assault, and a variety of offenses flourish with virtually no penalties and no restitution. Because the satanic worldview sees the criminal as the victim of society. The progressive thinks that if anyone deserves restitution, it is the criminal for having to live in a racist, capitalist society. Restitution must be made to criminals, perverts, the lazy, the drug addicts, the dropouts, because their crimes, failures, and poverty are society's fault. That's the view of George Soros, who's funding all this. That's the view of these liberal progressives. There's a reason that they let criminals out and people are getting murdered in the streets. That, that knucklehead, that guy in uh, uh, Fetterman in Pennsylvania, he wants to let out people that have been convicted of murder and rapists from prison. He really does. I know it's hard to believe. And he's almost, he might win. That's how bad society. Democrats will vote for somebody who says that. That's how crazy things are. We see that in a satanic law order, justice is turned upside down. Isaiah 5.20, once again. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put light for darkness and darkness for light. We'll stop there. We're just getting going. Like I said, we're going to have... We're going to discuss different topics related to Satan and demons, and then we're going to have some application woven into that, and then we'll have some application at the end. But it's good when you have when you when you see the teaching of Scripture. Let's make some application on the spot while it's fresh in our minds. Exactly what we just studied from Scripture. So you see that people that are, that are running our country, the Democrats, the progressives are thoroughly, they thoroughly have their heads planted firmly up Satan's rear end. And they're doing his work in the world. And they hate Christians in the church. Be aware of this. When you vote, be aware of this. We need to try to bring more people under Christ's authority by witnessing to them. We don't have any power of the sword, obviously. And we need to teach the whole counsel of God. So Christians, when they do when they are converted to Christ, they try to apply everything to their families and then to their jobs and societies. So we can have a Christian culture. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's, the teaching is amazing. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives. Put it in our hearts. Don't let us forget it. Bend our hearts to obey you, Lord. For we still must struggle with the sinful nature. 
So help us to be obedient, diligent. Increase our faith in your dear Son and His Word. Cause us to be faithful to your covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.